Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back to the Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse podcast. That was three hellos, if you're keeping track. I am one of your humble hosts, Gary Cohen. The other is... I am Tyler Wall still. Always. Every time. Every time you're Tyler Wall. I'm getting sick of it. I'm bored. Bring something new to the table next time. Change it up next time. (laughs) I would appreciate it. You don't need to change it up this time. We got a good podcast coming at you. Not that they're not all wonderful in their own unique every snowflake is new kind of way. Uh, This time we've got Jesus Molina from Waterfall Security. He's a director of industrial security. Uh, Really interesting guy. I believe he was talking to us from Barcelona. So he was at the end of his day. We were at the start of our day, if we seem sleepy during the podcast. Uh, But a a real interesting guy. We'll talk about a few different things. Um, The uh, physical consequences of cyber attacks. We talk quite a bit about the somewhat newly unveiled uh, Biden-Harris national cybersecurity strategy, which I think it's the first time we've really talked about that in depth on the podcast. So a uh, lot, lot of interesting stuff coming up here. Yeah, I mean, like he said, uh, parents obviously don't have favorite children, so we don't have favorite podcasts. Um, but this one is a very great one uh, with Jesus. Uh, so just before we get into it, though, um, so Gary and I had the pleasure of going to a candy shop this weekend with one of our friends from the beginning of time. Um, Gary, what is your favorite candy? Favorite candy? Oh, oh man, that is a, a a wide swath. I tend to, so many things are coming into my head. I tend to go chocolate over like gummy or sour or tart. So my first thought was in the candy bar realm. Uh, big fan of Twix. Yeah. Can't go wrong with a Twix. Um, big fan of Reese's cups, but I'll tell you what this, so this is, uh, and, and we are in the Chicago area. I'm going to rep my local Chicago company here for our pan. One of my favorites, and this is not what first came to my head are atomic fireballs. I don't know if you're a to- an atomic fireball fan, but I went to the Ferrara pan factory, which is not far from where I live and have like an, in. It, it is an industrial podcast, an industrial sized bag of atomic fireballs in my pantry. What is an atomic fireball? Just- uh, they are. It's like a probably like a jawbreaker sized candy, like a jawbreaker. Yeah. But it's got a spicy hot outside to it. So oh, OK. Yeah. So they're uh, it took my kids a little while to be able to eat them when they were younger. They would like put them in their mouths and then have to take them out. And yeah, they're. That they're one of my favorites. I think an undervalued candy. If you're doing your candy fantasy draft, undervalued. I'd pick them in an early round. Oh yeah, like second or third, maybe not first. But yeah, second. I wouldn't go first. No. How about, how about you? What's your uh, what's your candy of choice? Um, I really, I really like sour things. I don't know if it's because I'm a masochist. And I like my teeth to hurt the next day, or what what's happening with that, but. I do like sour candy a lot. Um, however, peach rings hold a special place in my heart. Um, I actually tried freeze-dried peach rings recently, and they were very weird, though. I don't think I'd get them again. Um, but one that, uh, as I've talked about before, with Gary at least, uh, is my biggest red flag as a human being. I actually kind of like circus peanuts. And I know that's a borderline crime, um, but... I don't know what it is about them, especially the ones around the Easter season. You go to the store. I got a couple bags here. I like to just just eat them throughout the day. I don't, there's something addicting about eating them. So it's not even necessarily about the flavor, honestly. 
And this will be Tyler Wall's last appearance on the podcast because he officially is getting canceled for liking Circus Peanuts. I think you should not. That's a piece you should have kept close. You shouldn't have <laughs> let people know that because people are immediately going to judge you. It That's is, a tough one. Again, in your candy draft, those are beyond Brock Purdy. They are beyond <laughs> Mr. Irrelevant. They are not getting drafted in my draft. Um, it, by the way, it is funny. We did Tyler mention we went, it's very Willy Wonka of us. We did go to a candy shop. We were having lunch with a, with a friend over the weekend. And I was like, there's a great candy shop across the street. You guys want to go? Yes. Like there was no hesitation at all. So, uh, so yes, we are adult human beings who, uh, who were spending our weekend at a candy shop, which is, I think where you got the freeze dried things that you said were mediocre. It is. It is. They were very weird. Uh, they yeah. were bad, but I don't think I'd get them again. I got fudge. It was really good. <laughs> so, um, you can't go wrong with there. No. So let's uh, let's because I think we're contractually obligated to let's talk about cybersecurity a little bit, shall we? Um, one of the things we're going to talk about with Jesus and and came out recently that's been really interesting, especially when it comes to industrial cybersecurity, which we do like to talk about, and critical infrastructure is the the Biden Harris administration national cybersecurity strategy. So this is a, a intended to be a policy response to this sort of wave of cyber crime that's been happening uh, and and a response to some of the things that are going on uh, with more attacks targeting manufacturing, critical infrastructure. Um, and, and there is, you know, Dragos had their recent year in review report, and they mentioned in that that there's a growing threat to industrial control systems and operational technology, you know, ransomware attacks against industrial organizations, had increased 87% over the previous year's report, uh, 35% more ransomware groups impacting ICSOT in 2022. So it is an issue. So the National Cybersecurity Strategy, and uh, we'll cover this with Jesus a little bit, but is built on five different pillars. Those are one, defending critical infrastructure, two, disrupting and dismantling threat actors, probably easier said than done, Three, shaping market forces to drive security and resilience. Resilience, a very big word in the national cybersecurity strategy. Four, investing in a resilient future. There's that word again. Five, forging international partnerships to pursue shared goals. Um, I, I think, and I think most people would agree, the strategy feels like it's a step in the right direction. Uh, it is, uh, as these attacks on critical infrastructure and the things that we rely on to keep the world running, uh, get more prevalent, the government is going to need to step in a little bit and, and try to help. So what the actual, I mean, obviously this still needs to pass through Congress to, to become law, but uh, what the ultimate impacts of this will be are yet to be seen, but it does feel like it's at least a step in the right direction. Yeah, this is kind of a conversation in terms of uh, how much how big the impact is actually going to be. Uh, we've had with several guests with the likes of Sam May before, but you know, with some of these government initiatives, sometimes it's hard to hard to know how much impact they really have on the landscape. And I guess this could be a whole separate podcast about uh, public policy, um, but that would be a whole different thing entirely. Yeah, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, it's just hard to know until we actually get there because a lot of times the these uh, different government initiatives related to cyber can be a little difficult. So he had a lot of great uh, input, though, on that department and just shedding some light on the whole Biden administration strategy. 
And if this does, I mean, some of the things that are in there that I think will will be impactful. I mean, one of them, it does sort of shift the responsibility uh, to the to major technology companies um, to to make sure their products are secure, so people can't really put out products that have these major flaws in them. But but one of the big things about this is a, if it if it passes and if it continues, you know, if it becomes a law, is the requirements, unlike a lot of previous government actions, are non-voluntary. You know, before there's been kind of this ethos of do the right thing. It's good for you. It's good for the country. Please try to, to do the right thing. And uh, some companies did and some companies didn't. These would be non-voluntary. So, I, you know, what the response will be from CEOs of companies and boards of companies, we'll see. But at least it would enforce a standard on companies. Uh, when it comes to critical infrastructure specifically, it's non-voluntary. So that that could be an interesting thing. But Jesus, we'll talk uh, in this podcast quite a bit about the cybersecurity strategy, some of the ways that it should be helpful, some of the ways where it might fall a little bit short, uh, the reason that it's necessary. But I think overwhelmingly, he, he was pretty positive about it. He was. He was very positive about it. So uh, we have a longer conversation with Jesus because it was a great conversation. So let's go ahead and bring him in here. Uh, Jesus Molina, he's Waterfall's Director of Industrial Security. He's a security expert with 25 years of experience in both OT and IT security. Uh, a former hacker, his research on offensive security and industrial systems has been echoed by many publications, including Wired, NPR, and The Register. One of the things that made him really interesting is that he does have this hacking background, which is where our conversation starts. Uh, yeah, had, a, had, had an interesting hack that he did in a hotel, which he'll talk about. So let's go ahead and, uh, and bring Jesus in here. Happy to have him. And uh, here's the conversation. All right. Today we have with us Jesus Molina. He's Waterfall's Director of Industrial Security. Jesus, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, this should be a fun one. So Jesus has a, a good background in both IT and OT, also a former hacker. I always, always like to ask about that. Uh, wondering, Jesus, if we can start off just to get to know you a little bit, if you could tell us about some of your former exploits as a hacker. I, I know of one at a luxury hotel uh, we can start with that. If there's anything else you want to talk about, we can hit those too. Sure. Well, uh, right now I'm uh, currently working for Waterfall Security and I have been doing that for five years. So perhaps you know, the interesting thing is like how I get there, how I started uh, working in uh, industrial security. So, you know, to your question about uh, the exploit at the hotel. So when I was 22 or so, I, um, I went to the, to the US uh, to do my PhD. So I did my PhD in intrusion detection systems. And after that, I went to the West Coast and uh, I worked for Fujitsu Labs. And there I did um, basically hardcore research on cybersecurity and uh, out of patents. But at some point I was uh, tired of the, and probably you, you, you guys are from San Francisco, I believe, you know? So I was tired of the commute uh, between uh, Silicon Valley and San Francisco. So I quit and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. So what I started doing is I started consulting and I became an offensive researcher. And uh, I work in many different projects. Uh, so about smart meters, uh, PLCs, uh, IoT devices. But one day something interesting happened and uh, I was not doing any research. I was a guest uh, in a hotel and this hotel is beautiful. It's a hotel in Sunshen and uh, the hotel spans the 
20 top floors of a skyscraper, the biggest um, uh, building in Shenzhen. So I was there and um, the um, uh, room had an iPad and the iPad controlled the room. So you can say, you know, blind number one, open. You can say, um, you know, like uh, put uh, channel uh, 35 in the TV, switch on the TV. So I was uh, looking at it and uh, for some reason or other, I decided to check how this works, how this iPad is able to, to um, you know, do all these things. So after a couple of hours, and that was quite fast, I was able to create a Python script on my laptop that was able to control my room. So I was able to open the blinds, change the temperature of the room. Uh, it was pretty bare bones, but I was able to do it. But then another question arised, and that's the, a little bit of the, a big exploit there, is that if I can do this in my room, maybe I can do that in every room of the hotel. So after a couple of days, that took me way longer, um, I was able to control the whole hotel. I was able to create a script that I was able to say, open blind on room 255, and it actually opened the blind. I was able to take control of the outside lights and make little um, you know, movements. So the interesting thing here is that, and that's what like brought me to industrial security is what I was able to take control of is a industrial protocol called KNX that was um, unauthenticated and unencrypted. So that was the reason uh, why I was able to, to basically do what I did. It makes me a little nervous. I was in Las Vegas recently and did have an iPad in my room that controlled everything. So uh, hopefully there wasn't somebody like you in the room next to me controlling my room. I have heard even like five years later, uh, these people are still contacting me and then say, oh, I was able to replicate what you did in that hotel in my hotel in X place, which is interesting. But many hotels now uh, use that and they encrypt the communications. They put more controls. Um, that one was one of the first doing that. That was like six years ago. So, you know, it was, uh, and again, the interesting thing is that this was a big hotel. It was uh, not a small hotel. So that's why they have to use this uh, industrial protocol that is used in airports, it's used in many um, building management systems. So it's a very common uh, industrial protocol. Makes sense. Any, any other hacks that you're particularly proud of or notorious for? Notorious. Um, I don't say notorious. That uh, one uh, brought me to Black Hat and Left Corner, all these places. Um, at RSA, we did uh, something really fancy, I would say, that uh, we did uh, life hacking um, with a couple more hackers. And uh, we were able to take control of uh, all sorts of devices. From We did a little bit of a, of a play where can we enter our like a room, uh, disconnecting the Bluetooth device, the Bluetooth lock, then, um, you know, shock the dog with the, take control of the collar, you know, and like shock the dog. And then, you know, so we were able to control of different IoT devices in real time uh, by looking at the, you know, spectrum and modifying the things that were sent. And another thing that uh, was very interesting to me, and uh, hopefully I will not get into trouble about it, but uh, I worked in smart meters for a while. And uh, what surprised me is that um, smart meters, I was able to create a little USB device that got into the smart meter and I was able to shut it down uh, remotely. Um, but that's a little bit more, uh, you know, it, it is uh, something that, uh, I mean, smart meters are still a little bit of a, of our work in progress, I believe. I think that's a really good, interesting and a good segue 
Because one of the things I want to talk to you about, I know you're doing and Waterfall is doing is uh, some research and thought leadership into the idea of cyber attacks with physical consequences. I think around the time of Stuxnet in 2010, it was, you, you really never saw that. That was the one that I think opened everybody's eyes. And for years, there weren't many cyber attacks with physical consequences. But if you look in the last few years, the number of those attacks is rising exponentially. I mean, why is that? And, and why should we be worried about that at this point? Yeah, so you had uh, Ben Miller in your podcast uh, from Dragos, and they do something extremely useful for the community, which is the during review, and he discussed it. We wanted to give something to um, the community too. And uh, what we did is we look at all attacks uh, that have happened um, since 2010, actually. And we look at these attacks uh, by the consequences. These attacks that were too, uh, directed to OT or they affected OT, did they have a physical consequence? And so we went to all the attacks that happened, obviously there's hundreds of them. Yeah, so it was uh, quite a bit of work. And uh, interesting is that, the, again, as you said, last decade, we had only, I think, uh, 14 attacks with physical consequences, last decade. And most of the attacks, you can recite them by name. As you say, 2010, stacks. 2015, Ukraine attack. 2016, the second Ukraine attack. 2017, Trinex. So most of these attacks, we all know about them. Um, there are some a little bit less, uh, less, uh, yeah, less, uh, less, mm, less known, but um, they are really 12 or 14. Now, what happened in this decade, uh, starting in 2020, is in 2020, we already saw 10 attacks with physical consequences. In 2021, we saw 22 attacks with physical consequences. In 2021, I mean, in 2022, we have seen already between 50 and 70 attacks with physical consequences. What we are seeing is like exponentially growing attacks with physical consequences. And uh, some of the attacks are famous, like the Korean pipeline in 2021, the attack to the metallurgic plant in Iran that caused a fire in 2022. But most of them are quite anonymous. We have attacks that like everybody talks with them about them for one or two days, and they, they forget about them. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is most of these attacks are ransomware, that for some reason or another, they affected the physical systems. Why is the reason that is the physical consequence? Usually it's because um, the ransomware encrypts maybe a historian. The historian is used to you know, um, used um, machines. So the machines cannot continue working, so they have to stop. So basically it's because of um, IT, OT dependencies. That's what the physical consequence arises. And a lot of people ask me if this is, you know, this is a good thing, right? The fact that there is not attacks that target OT systems directly, but there is a consequence and physical consequence. And I think that that's a little bit, uh, I think it's the opposite. Uh, we are not seeing any attack or many attacks with um, payloads that, uh, that um, focus on OT systems. So, these attacks that affect and create physical consequences, even not having a payload, that is a little bit con well, quite concerning. And uh, as you know, in 2022, PipeDream arrived, and PipeDream is uh, has all these different payloads with IAC 6.850, 
And it is a little bit concerning, well, quite concerning that we are now seeing um, a kind of a toolbox to create these payloads that will be much more damaging for OT systems. Excellent. You are teeing us up excellently for the segue to the next uh, step here. Uh, but so especially with protecting these cyber physical um, uh, operations, um, <clears throat> the Biden administration recently uh, released their cyber agenda. And I guess what are your thoughts on their cyber agenda? How heavily does it focus on protecting um, physical systems, uh, critical infrastructure security and things like that? Well, I read two documents on this. The first one is the Biden uh, Cyber Agenda, Biden Harris um, Cyber Agenda. And the second is NIST2 at the other side of the pond in Europe. And uh, the first thought is that uh, this document is much easier to read uh, because the NIST2 is at 150 pages with um, hundreds of articles. So I would say it's a, it's a little bit more streamlined. The, this Biden uh, Harris um, cybersecurity agenda, basically the main point they are making is they didn't want to do two shifts. Uh, one is about responsibilities. What they do not want is that uh, one person is responsible for putting the wrong password or doing um, the, uh, you know, creating a bad code. And because of that mistake, a whole um, cyber infrastructure goes down. So they want to shift responsibilities from a person to companies. So they want to help companies responsible to bugs, to problems they have, to cyber incidents. The second shift is they want to stop playing guacamole when it comes to um, cybersecurity. And rather than focus on uh, patching systems and uh, opening CVEs and closing CVEs, what they want to do is to focus on the future, to create you know, what they call a more resilient way of uh, uh, doing cybersecurity. And it's difficult not to agree with two, two points. Uh, both of them are, um, are, are, are quite um, important, I believe. Uh, how much do you think these, I know a lot with uh, government step in, uh, sometimes it may or may not actually come to fruition, it may not work, it may work. Uh, how beneficial do you think these new regulations are going to be for at least the United States um, moving forward? Well, they based their agenda into five pillars. And the first one is uh, doing uh, defending critical infrastructure. The second one is to disrupt and dismantle threat actors. The third one is to shape market forces to drive security and resiliency. Uh, the fourth is to invest in a resilient future. And uh, the last one is to force partnerships with other countries and other institutions. So all these five things are, again, it's difficult to disagree with any of these. Now, if you go into the details of which, what this means, uh, what they are proposing, and uh, there is an alphabet soup of agencies there that they want to create, or they want to put more energy on, is to, you know, for each specific, vertical, they want to make regulations more strict. Now, for me, regulations is something I will never, um, I will never get behind in, 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 in practice because I, we have seen in my company regulations like NERCSIP. And uh, the problem with regulations is that the people that are doing things right, then they stop doing the things they're doing right and focus on 
lawyers and focus on, and I, I think a lot of listeners will, will feel their pain, you know, because they have to do all these different, uh, with middlemen and then reports, and they're really doing a great job defending um, their sites. Now, the problem is that there is a minority, I guess, or like maybe 20 or 30% of sites that they are doing a terrible job with cybersecurity. And um, we need to raise, raise the bar for these sites so they do a better job. So I think that um, as long as we go into, um, we differentiate between uh, certain regulations for, for example, like uh, pipelines or uh, regulations for transportation, like the TSA uh, regulation that has appeared and enforce them correctly, I'm very happy that if that goes to place. Now, if these regulations are disrupting for the people that are actually doing their job, then I am not uh, behind it. And uh, Europe, so Europe has their own uh, EU-wide leg legislation on cybersecurity. Uh, in your opinion, how does the Biden administration cyber agenda compare to NIS2 um, that is in Europe? Actually, they're quite similar. Well, like uh, from the point of perspective of looking at both regulations and like, uh, well, regulations, this is a, a, this differentiate. This is a plan. And the NIST 2 is actually a legislation. So it's, it's quite different in the scope. You know, this, uh, maybe they will have legislation attached to it. Uh, NIST 2 is actual legislation. Um, NIST 2 is a little bit, uh, um, it's a little bit more complicated just because they have many member states and they have to be understanding. And uh, before NIST 2, there was NIST. And the problem with that is every member state, they will do whatever they wanted with uh, NIST. They will have their own uh, internal regulation. So every country in Europe had uh, a different perspective of what NIST uh, was implemented. And that was not very fair for countries that did a very good job and countries that did a very bad job. So NIST 2 is to level the playing field. And what the similarities are is that both ask for much more transparency for companies. Both ask for companies to be able to uh, report uh, when they have, for example, an attack. Uh, uh, this plan uh, by the Biden Harris administration asks for reporting, I believe it's in three hours or four hours of the attack. Uh, NISTU has penalties if you don't report at 24 hours. So reporting after an attack is something that both are tackling. Uh, they believe that there has to be transparent every company um, <clears throat> with what it's, uh, it's important uh, to report basically an attack. You know, if you are uh, the victim of a cyber attack, you need to report. Both of them want to strengthen uh, and create agencies that everybody can report to. In, um, in uh, NIST 2, for example, they're creating this agent in the clone C-Clone, that is like a, kind of a cool name, Cyclone that uh, is able to react to an attack. And uh, the same happened with the administration. So both of them have the same, you know, they want to create agencies that people can report. If there is a, an attack that uh, affects all the US, they can react to the attack. Uh, so that's where the similarities are. Both of them want to do that. So Jesus, you mentioned earlier the five pillars of the national cybersecurity strategy. The first one in there is defending critical infrastructure. So that's stuff like, you know, minimum cybersecurity requirements and critical sectors, public-private collaboration, defending and modernizing federal networks. When we're talking about what we mentioned earlier, 
physical consequences of cyber attacks when it when you're when it's critical infrastructure that can get really scary. So what are some of the implications for key critical industries like energy, aviation, water, rail, these things that we rely on every day? What what impact will this cybersecurity strategy have on those? What I believe and I hope that has is the following. Uh, the TSA um, directive for uh, pipelines, for example, that happened after the Korean pipeline is asking uh, to segment IT and OT clearly and make these two segments totally separated. Meaning that there is, if there is an attack to a ransomware attack as happened in the Korean pipeline into the IT system, there is a certainty that operations in OT will continue. So I believe that most regulations will go in that path saying that, okay, we had an operational system, uh, can be uh, transportation, for example, can be pipelines. You need to make sure that, you know, IT systems that handle data and systems that handle operations and can handle critical infrastructure are separated. So I think that will be the most um, common thing that's going to happen when it comes to uh, critical infrastructure. This uh, strict separation between IT and OT. And obviously there will be others such as reporting. Um, you will have to report any attack at 24 hours and you will have to provide information of why this has happened. And finally, and more importantly, companies, um, and you talked in a previous podcast about the uh, supply chain, companies uh, that you buy from will be held responsible if the reason the attack uh, was successful was because the system you bought um, was not up to the standard required by uh, the regulation. Got it. I mean, it's, this this uh, ITOT sort of convergence, the, the fact that these networks need to be segmented. It, a lot of times when companies are trying to defend their OT networks, their physical networks, it seems like they don't Maybe they don't take the time to fully understand what they're uh, what they're trying to defend. So they're trying to layer traditional IT security solutions on OT. Um, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, but why doesn't that work? Why is that not the right solution? I think it works. I think there are many companies that do a great job. And um, particularly in the US, I believe many energy companies, um, they take great care on doing proper segmentation. However, <laughs> there is always the ones that did not. And uh, this is uh, because they want to, um, they probably have to show their investors or uh, their board of directors that they have achieved you know, a 25%, 20% of, um, uh, of increase on production. And how did you show that? You, know, you saw that you have this you know, thing in the cloud that provides predictive maintenance. And what did you do in order to send this information to the cloud? You put a firewall directly in layer two and send information. And then you got hacked or somebody leave a password or an intern forgot about doing something uh, which happened in the current pilot apparently. And then you have that uh, conduit inside your, uh, or you don't know, you don't know if maybe if there is an IT attack, you maybe you know, have issues with, with that. So I, I don't think it's a, it's a matter of everybody's doing it wrong. I think it's a matter of, there are some companies that because of the pressures of uh, digitization and uh, they 
um, go too fast or they don't understand that uh, operations and IT need to be uh, properly segmented. Uh, it cannot be that uh, there is an attack in IT systems and then suddenly you cannot continue your work. That happens quite a bit in manufacturing, happens quite a bit in rail systems, happens quite a bit in transportation in general. Uh, doesn't happen that much in, in power generation, for example. We haven't seen uh, that much on there because again, there are uh, certain entities that, uh, you know, because of what is at stake, they do a better job uh, doing this uh, separation. While manufacturing as the driver is to increase production and uh, make more money, uh, maybe they just uh, jump a couple of hoops in order to get there. Makes sense. So, so we uh, occasionally do some work with Dale Peterson, who who runs S four down in Miami. Um, he and he mentioned he wrote an article recently about one of the big misses in the national cybersecurity strategy. And basically, you mentioned that resiliency is a big goal of it. The, the word resilient is used repeatedly in the document. Um, but one of the things that he said was a big miss is there's not a lot in the national cybersecurity strategy about how to keep these critical operations running or to get them back online if a cyber attack succeeds. Um, do, do you feel like that's something that the government can, that government regulations can help with? Is that something that that really... The responsibility for it falls on the individual company. Well, uh, first, uh, every block uh, of Dale has this. Uh, they, uh, Dale, for example, has written a blog recently called "One Way, One Way" about uh, intellectual technologies, which is what my company does, and uh, makes all these blogs that is a little bit trying to provide uh, a very uh, interesting uh, way of looking at the world. You know, and, and I love uh, love Dale. Everybody loves him. But um, um, when he says that, I believe what he uh, tries to say is that there has to be some kind of agency, um, like in NISTU, for example, they created this, uh, they, they enforced and uh, they created in 2021 this new department called Cyclone, which is basically working on that. On uh, if there is an attack that um, you know, puts down uh, 10 substations, uh, you have kind of a plan where you can put this back. But what is, uh, I think it goes more to the point is that uh, today's solutions that we have in order to combat uh, this new era of physical consequences, perhaps it's a little misguided. And I am going to quote, again, um, Robert M. Lee said something like, if you use, and I'm paraphrasing, if you use IT security solutions uh, in operations or in OT, then the expected return of investment is not going to be what you think it's going to be because it's different to protect data and protect operations. Now, maybe the missing point, and uh, I'm probably Dale wasn't going to that direction. For me, the missing, the missing uh, point there is uh, trying to uh, focus a little bit more in critical infrastructure in operations and say, we need to have a resilient infrastructure. And the only way to do that is not with more software, but to have engineered solutions, things that um, in the case of a cyber attack, your system will work no matter what. That's what happened in Ukraine, for example. Uh, Ukraine, they moved to uh, have plans to, in the case of cyber attack, move, move to manual operations. Why? Because uh, a cyber attack, you don't know what's the spread. So what they did is like, okay, we separate very clearly. This is OT, this is IT. And after that also, if uh, OT is affected, we can switch off 
something, and then we go manual operations. There is no way that a cyber attack can affect, affect us. There is a new trend, which is called the cyber informed engineers. And basically it goes into that is, can we have non-hackable safe words in order to protect and increase the resiliency that does not um, involve more software or more software solutions that are um, carried from IT? So maybe that's where he was going from, or maybe he was more going about creating something like Cyclone um, to, to react to an attack that is under the spread. But uh, in my opinion, the missed thing, which I agree with him, is perhaps is going more to solutions that are a little bit out of IT and more uh, about operations only. Transitioning from that to about cyber attacks and to uh, threat actors, of course, one of the more most interesting parts of cybersecurity. Uh, so nation state actors are, uh, they're ahead of cyber criminals right now. And usually their threat is to critical infrastructure, but um, will they stay ahead? Are they, how is that gonna, gonna pan out? Well, I believe that today's bad actors um, have a very little imagination when it comes to payloads. And this may be a little bit of um, a bad thing to say um, because they make that imagination because of what they said. But um, the current payload today is encrypt everything or destroy everything or if exfiltrate the data. With PipeDream, we have seen payloads that have the possibility of being more imaginative, meaning that uh, they can take control of protocols such as the substation protocol Goose uh, by IEC 61850. Now, with the advent of artificial intelligence, and uh, you talk about ChatGPT in, in quite uh, detail uh, here in the podcast, I myself uh, have been doing some research and I have been consulting with ChatGPT about IEC 61850. And uh, you know, I say, okay, so if I want to uh, close this relay and open this relay and uh, do this, 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 uh, what are the sequences that uh, you suggest that I will use? You cannot ask ChatGPT, create me a hack for uh, you know, destroying a substation. They will say, no, that's a bad thing. But if you ask the right questions, it will give you the right answers. Not, I don't know if they are the right answers, but they take you in that direction. My problem is that bad actors are um, going probably to modify their uh, behavior, in particular, if we don't pay ransomware. They are going to create payloads that will force them, force us to pay the ransomware. And these payloads may be something that we have never seen before. So that is, and I, I don't want to go into this like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Joker style fear of like everything will explode. However, uh, we have seen this trend starting to happen in hospitals. In hospitals in the past, it was about encrypt everything or exfiltrate the data. And if not, we will, um, we will, um, um, we will, uh, you know, like keep the data encrypted. Lately, hospitals have started not to pay. So what are ransomware actors starting to do it? worse things. They are starting to exfiltrate data of patients and uh, being very creating web pages or, and this is horrible, but that happened, um, web pages of basically porno pornography taken from uh, the details of the people with breast cancer, ca breast cancer. So they are doing things that are pretty heinous, pretty, pretty terrible. And uh, the question is, when the payloads 
can be much more inventive and much more destructive, will ransomware gangs will go there. We know nation states are going there. They caused a fire in Iran in 2021. They have, we have seen a pipe dream with quite sophisticated payloads that can do a lot of damage. Uh, will ransomware gangs go there after um, nation states are going there? And my answer is probably they will, and more with the help of these new AI um, tools. So uh, that is a big fear of mine of the, the, the payload, um, the change of payload from payloads encrypting data to physical consequences. That makes perfect sense. So I, one of the things that I, I know you've been working with lately are unidirectional security gateways. So I, I want to close out by asking, how can those help solve some of the, solve, but help remediate some of the problems that we've talked about earlier, whether it's, you know, physical outcomes of uh, of cyber attacks, whether it's that, that convergence of IT and OT that becomes a problem. T talk to me a little bit about uni unidirectional security gateways and how those can be a solution. So, I have briefly like uh, touched on unhackable safe words. And when I say unhackable, everybody frowns uh, because nothing is uh, secure and all these things. However, unidirectional technologies are unhackable just because uh, they send information one way. And uh, you have a laser and a receiver and the information by physics can only travel one way. So if you have an attack, like a ransomware attack, that is in the IT side of your, you know, like, uh, your uh, company, and the attack succeeded, the attacker could not go to OT by physics. It's not able to send information to OT. So it cannot continue the attack to OT. We have clients that had the same problem as the Colonial Pipeline, meaning they have ransomware in the IT systems. And because they used us to segment between OT and IT, sending data one way, they were certain that the attack has not affected their OT systems. So they could continue operations. Obviously they had a problem in IT, but the problem stayed in IT. So in the past, uh, these uh, universal technologies were a little bit of a niche. You know, it uh, was used mostly in energy and nuclear power plants, but in the last, for years, they have exploded. And uh, I'm telling you that because before we had only one competitor and now we have hundreds, literally. So obviously, interaction technologies now are mainstream, not only because um, you know, people are understanding uh, that's correctly segmenting physically, and what I mean physically is physically, not with software, OT from IT is extremely important and actually like TSA regulations in transport and uh, and um, uh, pipelines uh, are pointing to, to that, but also because it, they're uh, creating an ecosystem of, uh, it's not only just like setting an universal gateway, people are uh, using universal gateways in many uh, in ways, creating real complicated ar architectures where you can have 10 or 20 universal gateways uh, in different directions, you know, sending information and I don't want to, I mean, it's, it's quite complicated, but uh, you cannot see universal gateways now today as we saw in the past as a data diode that sends information one way. Now we have to see them in the context of huge architectures where uh, firewalls are replaced uh, with these uh, devices just because they are better in order to transfer data from OT to IT and to uh, do other, uh, other things. 
Again, engineer solutions, I think they're going to triumph in the future where uh, you don't rely on software in order to prevent um, a malware to go into, oper into operations or into affect your critical infrastructure, but you are relying into solutions that are engineered, meaning that they work 100% every time. And that is something that we are not used to when it comes to uh, cybersecurity. Got it. That's that's all terrific information. Jesus, thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to be on. Full disclosure, I had a conversation with uh, Jesus and some other people from Waterfall a couple of weeks ago and got off the call and immediately was like, we got to get this guy on the podcast. He's great. So <laughs> thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. That was it was wonderful. I love your podcast. And, and I have to say, you came through incredibly well. I know you've got a little sickness running through your family right now, and you would never, in, other than the fact that I just outed you, you never would have known. Well, like, uh, you know, if you have a daughter, I think you have one too. No? I do. Like, I, 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 you know that uh, when they're at a certain age, which is six or seven, they are little uh, germ bombs. And uh, it's, it's complicated not to, not to get them. Uh, my, my daughter is, is wonderful. And uh, Two days ago, she came down with this uh, flu and uh, she was pretty bad. And I asked her, uh, please don't kiss me, right? <laughs> and, and she didn't, except uh, when I went to bed and I fell asleep, I, like, I, I woke up with her kissing me in the cheek. <laughs> you know? It's like, daddy, I really wanted to give you a kiss, which is wonderful and horrible at the same time, because I knew at that moment that I got it too. So, but you know how daughters are. So it's wonderful, but uh, you know, you have these things. Yeah, this is my, uh, my son. This was not uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, he's, you know, they're children. So he, if I'm drinking something in a cup, he'll pick it up and take a drink out of it, or he'll take a bite out of my food or things that kids do. And he was doing this and had been doing it all through dinner. And then later that night went, yeah, I've had a sore throat for like three or four days now. I was like, what? why are you drinking out of my things? You should know better than this by now. But yeah, it's uh, they love to transfer their germs to their parents. It's one of the wonderful things about children. Yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. <laughs> I've been like shaking with fever for the last two days and I still love her. So that, that, that's the wonderful part of it. That's that's the important thing. Well, again, thank you so much for being on, especially uh, especially having been sick this week. Uh, some great insights, and hopefully we'll get to have you on again sometime. Thank you so much, uh, Tyler, Gary. It was a pleasure. All right, guys. That was Jesus Molina of Waterfall Security. Uh, great conversation, and what a trooper. He was uh, was a little under the weather. And honestly, this this whole podcast, he was under the weather, although came through fantastic. Uh, Tyler had his microphone on mute for most of the time because he's sniffling because he's got allergies. Yep. So I think I was the only one that was, I almost said 100%. I'm never 100% who was operating somewhat optimally during that that podcast. That sounds about right. <laughs> one of the things that he mentioned there I, that I think is really interesting and something that we've talked about before and we'll probably continue to talk about. So we had a moment there at the end where we were talking about kind of the difference between nation state actors and cyber criminals. Nation state actors probably are the ones who are preying on critical infrastructure the most. Um, but it, this idea that cyber criminals are really following pretty closely behind, a few years behind, but are echoing some of the tactics. And one of the things, and we've talked about it on the pod before, that's making them more effective are these new AI tools that are out there, like the chat GPTs of the world. 
I mean, we use it. I can, I can say I use it when I'm creating content. If I'm trying to come up with an idea for an article, if I'm looking to, for research, if I'm looking to write a, a, a subject line for a newsletter, I'm occasionally checking in with chat GPT, uh, which I'd like to think that's a good reason to use it, but there are nefarious purposes too. It's these, uh, AI is now being used by cyber criminals, uh, probably also by nation state actors to craft more effective attacks, which is um, a scary thing out there. I mean, you, we have seen, and we again, we've talked about it here, the difference between what AI programs could do five years ago and what they can do now. And if you think about what they'll be able to do a year from now or five years from now, um, that, that's a, a, a pretty scary prospect. Yeah, especially if you, when you think right now, AI technology is the worst it's going to be, right? It is only going to get better from here. Um, with that, of course, comes the caveat, uh, things can only get more hectic from here and chaotic in terms of especially the cyber landscape. And a lot of these AI tools have built in uh, protection for instances, instances like this. So like for like the example he used, uh, you can't just type in, hey, how do I hack into A or B or C? You can't do that. It has built-in protection for that. However, I mean, there's there's loopholes around that. You can say, hey, um, so I have this, if we use an example of like this PLC, um, how would I use code to get into the PLC and just to control it or whatever? If you If you're much more targeted selective and make it seem less malicious and i'm not giving anybody ideas here because that at least you don't do that uh but we already know that tyler's a bad decision maker he admitted to eating circus peanuts earlier <laughs> right exactly so hack a plc no um but as long as if, if you're more selective with your words you can get it really to do whatever you want you can build up these different scenarios and say hey if this were to happen what would this what would happen here blah, blah, things like that so it's really, AI is going to be changing, I mean, the landscape of everything related to everything worldwide, but specifically within the cyber landscape, it's going it, to, we're going to see a pretty large metamorphosis here in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And ChatGPT won't be the only one. I mean, Microsoft oh. Bing has got its own thing and other companies will be coming out. It'll be, it will become more pervasive, Um for I, I think good and bad. Uh, one of the other things that, that I, I loved about uh, about the conversation with Jesus was um, is his hacking background. So he talked about the hack that he did in a luxury hotel. And I mean, I, I was literally a week ago in a hotel room in Las Vegas that had an iPad controlling all of the, the hotel functions. And uh Knowing Jesus's background and preparing for this podcast, I was thinking about that and looking at that iPad the whole time I was there going, that feels dangerous to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if the hotel has done anything to cordon this off and make it impossible for someone to take control of my room. And uh, not, uh, not that it would have impacted me very much if the heat went up or down or the blinds opened or closed. I'll, I might've been a little freaked out by it, but, uh, but yeah, it's, this idea of physical consequences to cyber attacks, we talk about it all the time, but that is the place for me where things get really scary. It's, I, I, you hate to have, if your company gets ransomware, to, to lose 
sensitive information, to lose your secret sauce, to lose customer information, if you're a hospital patient records, the reputational damage, all of those sorts of things. There are a million dominoes that fall when a cyber attack happens. But then once you start talking about um, whether it's building automation systems, I can take control of a hotel. I can shut the elevator doors or open them. I can raise the heat in the boiler. Whether you're talking about water, wastewater, I can change the uh, the chemical makeup of the water. I can raise the amount of lye. It, those things get really scary. So um, some of Jesus's research on the the physical consequences of these cyber attacks i thought was really interesting as well yeah no it's it's uh it's a little unnerving the amount especially with the interconnective nature of our world today where yeah it just doesn't i mean it will take more as cybersecurity continues to increase to match but usually we live in a very reactive society so uh something's gonna have to happen first uh which is a little terrifying but, and, you know, Tyler and I, we are absolutely not cybersecurity experts. We are content people who cover cybersecurity. Yes. So every time we have one of these conversations, we usually stay on after we stop recording for a few minutes. And there's usually a moment in those after conversations where both of us are like, wow, that was scary. I didn't realize <laughs> that was the case. Yeah. An oh shit moment. Yeah. We have <laughs> plenty of those. Um, of course, fantastic segue. For more information just like this, uh, you can visit us at icspulse.com or if you prefer our longer uh, URL in www.industrialcybersecuritypulse.com. Uh, if you would like to reach out to Gary or I for to if you want to give us feedback, tell us how great we are, we could use it. Um, or just get on Tyler for the circus peanut thing. Or, or hey, look, if you want to, yeah, if you want to slander me a little bit for that, that's okay too. I probably earned that. Uh, but you can reach me at uh, twaltwall at cfemedia.com. And I am G Cohen, G C O H E N, also at cfemedia.com. Yes. And you can also reach us at Twitter uh, at ICS underscore pulse. And make sure you tune back in in a couple of weeks as we will have another fantastic podcast awaiting you on a Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Always happy to have you here. See you next time. 